0: turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In recent weeks, pastors Walker and Light have addressed this long chapter on marriage and singleness, divorce, one's calling. And we close the chapter tonight as Paul addresses questions that the Corinthian peoples had about marriage and remarriage. I'm convinced that Paul speaks to the broken and flawed understandings of marriage in our own day, just as well as he did 2,000 years ago. Marriage indeed is a good gift of God, but it takes a back seat to the highest and greatest gift of God, that is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, the one to whom we will be married for all eternity. I pick up reading in 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 25. For those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control... And has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would bless our understanding of this text, this passage. As Paul addresses questions and anxieties about the people at Corinth, we too have our own questions and troubles in our day and age, in a world confused about marriage and many things. Give us your wisdom and your peace, we pray in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. The recent passing of Elizabeth Elliot reminds us of one of the best missionary love stories from the mid-20th century. I can remember as a very young believer in my late teen years reading the writings of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, who as young people were wrestling over their call to foreign missions and considering whether or not to marry. And at that time, I had never heard of anybody Willing to consider postponing marriage or foregoing marriage altogether for the sake of Christ and kingdom service. Jim and Elizabeth Elliott were in a relationship for a number of years before they considered it wise and permissible for them to enter into, Mary, into marriage, even as they anticipated joining a very dangerous mission field. For a few, but just in, just in a few short years, Jim, Elliot, and some colleagues would be speared to death by hostile tribesmen in South America. Jim would leave behind his wife and a 10-month-old daughter. In the eyes of the world, this was a tragic and unnecessary loss, yet precious in the sight of the Lord, or the death of his saints. This marriage, which was severed prematurely, yet was used by God in a very determined young mother to bring the message of redemption to a lost people, the powerful message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of their sins. And the work of Elizabeth carried on through two more marriages and much writing and work over the radio. Paul says in our text that Those who enter into marriage enter into worldly troubles and many anxieties. And he gives hard advice, not just for young couples who might consider foreign mission service, but those in all kinds of circumstances. The couple whose parents are not supportive of them getting married. The young widow with small children whether to pursue marriage again with a willing man. A father in his 60s found to be a widow, finding himself to be a widower after 40 years of marriage, whether or not to remarry. Paul is unafraid to give his own godly advice, rooted in biblical teaching on the nature and purpose of marriage. And we need this wisdom. In our day and age, in which marriage has been turned into a project of self-fulfillment, scripture would inform us that marriage is about service. Self-sacrifice and provides the opportunity to grow in Christ for all those who would enter into this institution designed by God. Now, it seemed that Paul was responding to questions raised by the Corinthian peoples who are under a kind of ascetic pressure. Those who are speaking into the lives of the betrothed, those who were engaged and married, who are already legally married but not consummated yet into formal marriage, and those who were widows. And there were, apparently was pressure for them not to marry and even questioning whether it was a sin for, the, for a Christian believer to marry. Now, Paul gives no command from the Lord, but offers his spirit-led pastoral counsel to those who would be faithful followers of Christ. Paul rejects the notion that the Christian follower of Christ must refrain from marriage. He says very plainly that marriage is by all means permissible, but not advisable, at least not in certain circumstances. Now, Numerous scholars have debated what Paul means by the present distress in verse 26. There are those scholars who believe that Paul is speaking in universal terms that it is not advisable to marry in the New Testament age as believers in all ages will face various trials and persecutions. I find myself siding more with scholars who opt for a a more simple and more natural reading of the text that indicate a very real and present crisis, in fact, so evident to the Corinthians that it did not even need to be named. We do know from history that there was a severe famine in the decade of the 50s of the first century, a severe food shortage across the Roman Empire. And it was in 54 A.D., about the time that this letter was written, that Emperor Claudius imposed an imperial cult in Corinth, which would have put significant pressure on believers to sacrifice to the pagan gods. And in fact, later on in this letter, Paul uh, references that the Corinthians had experienced many illnesses and even deaths, indicating perhaps a plague, which was not uncommon in urban areas of the ancient world. Well, I do believe, as we look at this text as a whole, I believe that Paul is saying something more than just referring to these present crises as a reason to not enter into marriage. So we cannot easily dismiss this as just merely a, a localized measure of advice from the Apostle. He goes on in verse 28 to offer a warning that those who enter into marriage will have worldly troubles. And then expresses his wish in verse 32 that followers of Christ would be free of anxieties. Paul suggests that marriage, the nature of marriage, adds burdens and even temptations and trials for the life of discipleship that those that are unmarried and who have undivided devotion to the Lord will not have to experience. Well, having considered these things, we come to verses 29 and 31, where we have even more interpretive challenges from this passage. Paul begins by reminding believers that our time is short, and that will always be the case for believers as we await Christ's return. But yes, indeed, our lives are short. And this follows a, a followed by a pithy list of perspective checkers, things that help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Paul says things bluntly, those who have wives should live as though they had none. Now, Paul is not giving husbands grounds to neglect or ignore their wives. That would conflict with his teaching in Ephesians 5, where he says to husbands, love your wives. Lay down your lives for your wives. I believe that what Paul is saying is that marriage should not be all-consuming. Rather, for the faithful follower of Christ, our consuming passion is to serve and know the Lord. And in the best marriages, each spouse is diligently and earnestly seeking to please God first. Over and above, a spouse Children and other family members. Paul goes on to turn mourning and rejoicing upside down. He indicates that believers do not mourn the way the world mourns, nor rejoice the way uh, the secular culture rejoices and cherishes the things of the world. In politics, we are not euphoric when our candidate wins, nor do we despair when our party loses. When tragedy strikes, unbelievers may shriek with unconsolable grief, but believers mourn with a humble confidence in the God who raises the dead, those who die in the Lord. We rejoice over conversions while the worldly people yawn. We do not obsess over worldly goods, spending our Wealth on Vanity Fair, for this present form of this world is passing away. I believe that our understanding of Paul's advice is helped when we compare the ancient world's view of marriage with our own. At least in the Greco Roman world, and I gather in most ancient cultures, marriage was considered even more of a social contract, a way of, of perpetuating children and passing on the family line the way of, of transferring property legally and preserving it within families. And in the ancient world, as it is in, still in many parts of the world today, women were considered second class. And especially in Greco-Roman culture, the double standard was very uh, common, where men would have sexual liaisons with other women and even men. This was a world in which young girls were forced into marriage at very young, precious ages, largely due to the shortage of women, which resulted from the common practice of abandoning the birth of baby girls and women in childbirth having higher mortality rates than they do today. The ancient world was also a place where young widows were pressured into marriage, into remarriage again and again, a world where widowers had very few viable options. And so it's in this context that we can better appreciate Paul's warning to believers coming out of a very pagan context, a very warped understanding of marriage, who are still learning and grasping the Jewish and biblical understanding of of godly marriage. Paul aims to protect women from many of the abuses they suffered. And as Paul is teaching and communicating the gospel of God's grace, notice the transformation. For men whose status was rooted in their, in their property, in their heirs, and a woman whose status and significance was rooted in, in bearing numerous legitimate offspring for her husband, these status, are marginalized by the power of the gospel, which gives the new believer meaning and significance and purpose as a child of God. The gospel means that marriage and parenting and property are now lower in importance to the significance of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And this is a radical transformation of a people's sense of identity and purpose and worth. You know, I think today, as believers, we can take for granted the impact of biblical teaching on marriage and the family. Now, at this time, 2,000 years ago, the the Jewish understanding of marriage was much better than the pagan. They did not tolerate immorality nor abortion. And yet, disdain for women was very common— with misogynist attitudes towards women in Jewish culture. It was in the church. In the early church, the status of women was raised. As we see Jesus interacting with women, as we see women involved in the early church and the leadership and supporting the work of the apostles, women in the early church gained a new respect as biblical teaching on the equality of women as fellow image bearers of God, in, the, in uh, equality with men, was restored as God intended. Infant girls were no longer aborted. Widows were no longer pressured into remarriage, but provided, but being provided with a safe haven within the church community to not have to marry into uh, pagan families. The age of w- the age at which a young woman would marry rose as Christian influence spread over the Roman Empire. The declining birth rates, which had been going down for centuries, began to rise again because of healthy biblical teaching on marriage and family and faithfulness and lower rates of sexually transmitted diseases and lower rates of abortion and more females in which to produce godly offspring. So we take these things for granted, not realizing the radical impact the biblical teaching had on the Greco-Roman, the former Roman Empire. And so Paul's counsel that elevates the gospel, of the, elevates the disciples' status by lowering very idolatrous and flawed attitudes towards marriage and family resulted in the flourishing of the Christian family. Here in our modern age, we might, we might concede several improvements over views of marriage from the ancient world, but I would insist that many of our attitudes and idolatries in post-Christian society are hardly any better. We are far removed from arranged marriages. People have more options to marry today and marry more for romantic love and not just for uniting families or preserving property. Women, indeed, are more equal Have greater protections in our society. And I would argue women are still very vulnerable. And a society that continues to expand its objectification of the female body continues to expand and proliferate more gross, grotesque abuses of sexual immorality. That we are far removed from seeing marriage as a societal duty, that we've lost, in some sense, the view of marriage as service to another. And as Pastor Walker indicated a few weeks ago, marriage has now become the marriage of me. These are very prolific problems in our day and age. We need revival. We need a renewed understanding of the Christian calling into marriage, which is a calling to self-sacrifice, the dying to self, and the restoring the gospel call of giving oneself for the glory of God and the good of others. Well, now in verse 32 and following, Paul says to the Corinthians, I want you to be free from anxieties. And there's a cynical side of me that says, well, good luck with that one. Marriage indeed brings anxieties. And as children are brought into the world, there are more anxieties. This past week, my 16-year-old got his driver's permit. As my wife went out with him on his first training run, she came back and uh, reminded me that after him, we will have six more to go. (laughs) Anxieties will either drive us to the Lord or drive us further into our own self centeredness. When you marry, you marry a sinner. When you bring children into the world, you bring another sinner into the world. And sinners have this this nasty tendency to demand lots of attention. The call to Christian discipleship requires a hard and fast commitment to die to self, to curb one's desires, but also to resist the demands and pressures within your relationships As people would enlist you in the task of making them the center of your universe. Only Christ can fill that role. Only Christ can meet the deepest needs of our hearts. Only Christ deserves the place and first priority of our devotion. And so, those who would be steadfast in pleasing the Lord, as we seek to seek and to please the Lord first, he uses those efforts to bring blessing and satisfaction to others, and to whom he's called us into relationship, whether it's in marriage, parenting, or otherwise. Several biographers and historians have indicated that uh, 18th-century evangelist John Wesley was unwise to marry. John Wesley married at the age of 48 to Mary Vazell a well-to-do widow with four children, and she left him after 15 years of marriage, as one historian wrote it, unable to cope with the competition for his time and devotion presented by the ever-burgeoning Methodist movement. His demanding itinerant ministry proved unsuitable for marriage. It's for that reason, I believe, that Jesus and Paul did not marry though I'm sure the offers were plenty in, that, in their ancient world context. So Paul responds practically to these questions in verses 36 to 40, speaking to the engaged, those who were entering into marriage, who were betrothed, wondering whether or not they could continue and proceed. And Paul very clearly says to them that they are free to marry. It is not a sin. And yet offers his advice again that it's better to refrain from marriage. I attended a wedding at a Catholic church years ago, a wedding of a friend of mine, and the priest went on this little harangue, chastising people for their desire to be married. Now, I don't believe this priest was reflecting Paul's desires. I don't believe Paul was... Uh, dismissive or disdainful towards those who marry. And I do believe that the Roman Catholic Church has made a grave mistake by forbidding their clergy to enter into marriage, which has led to all kinds of problems and immorality. And I don't believe that Paul is at odds with the rest of the biblical, the biblical case that is made in favor of marriage, which seems to be urging God's people to unite in godly marriage to bear God the offspring, to provide stability to society, to be salt and light amongst the pagans. Certainly, Jeremiah's counsel to the exiles is still valid. That The exiles in Babylon were encouraged to marry, to produce children, to plant vineyards, to seek the welfare and prosperity of the city into which God has sent them. I don't believe Paul's message is at odds with Jeremiah or elsewhere. We do know that singleness was not required of elders in the churches and Paul's pastoral epistles. And in fact, marriage even seems to be assumed among most church leadership of that time. And then in these final verses, Paul addresses the widows, those who had been married and whose husbands had passed on, that they're now free to marry again but only in the Lord. And I believe that Paul adds a warning that we still add on today, to urge those who yearn for marriage to resist the desire to compromise by marrying an unbeliever. A wise pastor once counseled a group of us who were yet married that it's better to live as a single person with hope than to compromise in marrying an unbeliever and be in a marriage without hope of the joy and union that comes with intimacy with Christ. Dr. Dan Zink, my, one of my counseling professors in the seminary, indicated that he did a lot of premarital counseling outside his work for the seminary. And he, he would tell us that when he was doing premarital counseling for a young couple entering marriage for the first time, he would require only five premarital counseling sessions, same as we, off, we, provo- we require here at Westminster. But for those who were entering into marriage a second or a third time, Dr. Zink would require 15 to 20 counseling sessions. And this was based on his experience of those entering into marriage a second time, had many challenges. The merging of two family cultures, of, of merging children together, bringing unchecked baggage and expectations into their marriage. The pastors here have found that couples who are re- in marrying for a second or third time oftentimes think they don't need any premarital accounts, and they've got it all figured out. Well, oftentimes they are humbled to realize how much how difficult remarriage can be. I offer my own advice regarding marriage. I urge the unmarried to pursue marriage. When you have the opportunity to pursue marriage with someone who is a genuine Christian, a person of reliable, godly character, of Christian conviction, a person who, with whom you have natural connection with. By all means, pursue marriage and seek the wise and godly counsel of loved ones and parents and your pastors and godly friends. Like Pastor Walker indicated a few weeks ago, I reject the pious platitudes that for the single that God will bless them with a spouse when they find their contentment in God. I believe that is abusive and and manipulative. But for many of our young people, marriage will not be a realistic prospect, sometimes due to the shortage of suitable partners. And I offer this word of encouragement to those who are unmarried who desire marriage. I, for one, don't believe that Paul's gift of singleness was somehow a lack of sexual desire or desire for intimacy with another person. I believe that Paul was so consumed with the glory of God and a consuming passion to advance Christ's kingdom that he was able to subject his bodily desire. I'm I'm sure that Paul struggled with loneliness just like any other unmarried person. And yet we see frequently in his life a man who pursued deep intimacy with God and fellowship with godly believers in close community. Believers may be single indefinitely, may find themselves single again, may find themselves in marriages where physical and emotional intimacy is minimal or missing altogether. And yet Christ is sufficient to meet every believer where he or she is at, to sustain them, to encourage them, to help them to grow in grace and godliness. I'm convinced from Scripture and the testimony of others that Christ is sufficient for us to remain pure and content and pursue godly lives, whether married or unmarried. Like most parents... I envision my own children someday getting married. I long for them to to marry and to bear children. Yet I will not impose upon them any sort of higher status of being married than over being single. Sometimes we do that in the church culture. And we need to be self-aware of how we treat those who are unmarried. And not oppress them with a heavy marriage status culture that elevates marriage above singleness. The Bible doesn't do that. And we need to welcome all people into the fellowship in the intimate relational life of the church, married and single, those with children and those without. And Paul writes to help put these things in perspective because our ultimate hope is not in marriage, it's not in having children, it's not even in our earthly family. Our ultimate hope is in Christ. And for those who pursue marriage, do so of a desire to be a blessing to serve others. You know, I think many of the, the problem behind our culture's recent, most recent embrace of gay marriage is largely due to the false gods we have made up of love and sex, companionship and family, of seeking in these good gifts of God that which only God himself can provide. Within a day where many people sympathize with how gay people have been treated in the past and are trying to compensate them with the privilege of marriage and its benefits. Well, I have news for gays. They will not find in marriage that which they are looking for. Living in rebellion against God, when one lives in rebellion against God, there is no human relationship that can fulfill and satisfy. I offer the same news to young people who feel like they will burst into a thousand pieces if they don't get married. And even consolation for the widow or the widower who despairs of the thought of living the rest of their days without their spouse. Marriage is a good thing, but it cannot bear the weight and expectations that can only be fulfilled through union with Christ, the one who provides the true marriage that lasts forever and meets our deepest, most intimate needs. You cannot expect your spouse to be what only God can be for you. Do not burden your children with bearing the weight of your purpose and your meaning and your significance. That's what I call attachment idolatry. No, marriage and parenting and families serve our purpose for a time. It's temporal. It's this life. When we enter into heavenly glory, there is no marriage or giving in marriage. There is no producing of children and offspring. We are all one family of God, united and wed to Christ. We need that perspective. And we need that teaching in a day and age where misunderstandings abound, where young people are terrified of marriage, where young couples are resistant to have children, we need a biblical revival and a healthy and God-centered view of marriage and parenting. So those who are single, those who are married, those who are single again, those who marry again, those who've never had children, those who outlive their children, those who never knew their earthly parents, all of us together are united in Christ to form an intimate Family of God to enjoy the riches of His eternal and gracious presence forever and ever. In 1524, Martin Luther helped a number of runaway nuns to find husbands. And when it was suggested that he, too, marry, he dismissed it at first, not because he was opposed to getting married, but because he faced the very real prospect of death as a heretic at the hands of Catholic authorities. And after several failed attempts to marry off Catherine von Bora, a, one of the last in this line of nuns seeking a marriage partner, Luther resolved to marry her. And he gave, initially, three reasons for it. One, to please his father and to provide him a, a lineage of, of his name. Secondly, to spite the pope and the devil. And his third reason was to seal, seal his witness before martyrdom. It's very evident from Luther's writings that marriage matured him. As he learned to take his wife into account as he made decisions about the church and his ministry, they together raised six children, four orphaned children, and took on numerous boarders who took up residence in their home for a time. Martin Luther increasingly saw marriage as a school of character. In one place, he writes, What a lot of trouble there is in marriage. Adam has made a mess of our nature. Think of all the squabbles Adam and Eve must have had in the course of their 900 years. Eve would say, you ate the apple, and Adam would retort, well, you gave it to me. And yet, with all the trials and troubles of marriage, Martin Luther knew it was good for him. Another place he wrote, one of God's greatest graces is love that persists in marriage. Is at first a drunken love, but after the intoxication wears off, then comes real married love. In the old days, people would offer this sound advice to brides. Make your husband glad to cross his threshold at night. And to the groom, they would add, make your wife sorry to have you leave. You want marriage, but you cannot have it without holiness in the school of character, is a calling filled with worldly trouble, anxieties, and divided devotion to the Lord. For the unmarried that desire it, for the married who wish they were not married, for those who are happily married who may be tempted to forget to please the Lord, whatever state you may find yourself in, may you find your peace and your consolation in the Lord, longing for that eternal oneness that believers will enjoy with Christ at the great wedding supper of the Lamb. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word that instructs us in all manner of life and godliness, and we pray that you would give us grace to pursue the calling to which you have called us in marriage, in singleness, and parenting, And the relationships in which we find ourselves help us to be a godly witness for you, to find our joy, our contentment, and our peace in Christ, the one true lover of our souls forever and ever. Amen.